Hello, Habit Mechanics. I hope you've had a fantastic week so far. My name's Dr. John Finn. I'm again joined by my friend and colleague, Andrew Whitelam, and we're going to dive into another chapter of the Habit Mechanic book. Andrew, how are you doing? Yeah, hi, John. Really well, thank you. Hope you're doing good too. And yes, uh, this podcast, we're looking at chapter eight, which um, is a really seminal part of the book for me it, it talks about your journey to where you are now in great depth and it's fascinating um you title it my light bulb moment why i made it my mission to help others become habit mechanics and there's so much fascinating detail and so many fascinating stories and anecdotes in there um that i think people really will uh, want to listen to this one uh, we'll get into that in a moment but but what have you been up to uh, in recent days john do let me know yeah, so really busy at the moment. In fact, most of the, spending most of my time training people up to become certified habit mechanic coaches, um, which is really exciting and interesting. We've got such a diverse range of people who are training up um, where we work one-to-one together over about six months. We do six 90-minute sessions where I train people how to use the habit mechanic um habit metric tools and the habit mechanic toolkit so that they can use them for themselves but also for their clients um or to start creating packages that they're going to use for the inside their business or inside a new business that they're creating we've got people who are working in big businesses within sport within the military um within education but also people that have got their own private coaching businesses, but also people that want to start a coaching business. And then, yeah, I'm just I'm just excited that we're getting such a a great group of people um, that will be, they'll go on our website as certified coaches um, and just makes it easier for us to help as many people as possible to, to use these tried and tested tools to make life easier because we know how difficult it is. So that's what I'm spending most of my time doing this week. And um, it is really rewarding work. So that's good. Yeah. And it really does connect with something we're going to discuss later in the podcast. Um, we're returning to the topic of artificial intelligence again and uh, its implications for our modern world and our society and our our, our world of work um, and the fact that you're helping to create more people who can add value to other people's lives and support them um, in ways that shall we say machines can't that's perhaps a hint of what we're going to talk about I think that's so important and so fascinating so we'll talk about that later in the podcast we'll also be taking a question um, so please do listen out for that but let's now dive deep into chapter eight, as we said we would, John. Um, your light bulb moment, as you term it, it's a, a fascinating sequence. We've talked before about your failure, in inverted commas, on the rugby field, which which kick-started a journey for you. Um, and that was the start, that's the start point of this chapter. Um, from, from there into other sporting endeavours and, and developing on from that to where we are now. So please do start the story for us, if you would. Yeah, thanks for reminding me about that, Andrew. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a real, real event that happened in my life. 
I was always very good at sport. Surprisingly, surprise, surprise, because that's pretty much all I did as a kid. I just played sport. Um, so I was good at catching, throwing, um, running quite quickly. Yeah, and at university, I I got selected for the international student team, the training squad. Um, and we were having a warm-up game before we were going to play Australia. And I basically blew my chance by what we might call in sports psychology, choking under pressure. So it was a cold, wet, windy day in the north of England and we were playing a men's professional team. I think I was 19 at the time. And um, all I had to do was catch a high ball that well, I was pretty much stood underneath the goalposts on, on our own goal line. And the ball was swirling around up in the air, coming down and coming down faster and faster towards me. But all I could say to myself was, don't drop it, don't drop it, don't drop it. And it's like saying, don't think of a white elephant. You know, so no, I didn't even drop the ball. I just completely missed it. The opposition scored a try. I got substituted pretty much soon afterwards. And then I didn't get selected for the game. But I'd also ruptured a quad in that sort of probably 18-month period. So it was a real struggle for me to keep physically fit enough to um, get to the physical conditioning levels I needed to be at to compete at that level so I knew that my rugby career was pretty much over anyway because I, I was physically kind of broken so I decided that if I couldn't compete on the field the next best option was to help others to do it better and I you know part of the reason I was kicking myself about the particular choking episode was because I was studying sports psychology and I was finding it particularly interesting. So I knew that I shouldn't be saying that to myself, but we know there's a big difference between knowing and doing. And that that really, I suppose, accelerated my focus in my academic studies, knowing that if I wanted to make a career of this, I needed to get a good um, undergraduate degree classification so that I could go to study a, a good master's programme. And you did that, John. I will exclusively reveal for everybody listening or people who haven't read the book and um, your interest in sports psychology and the mental processes within sport prompted you to study a master's then. Uh, And and because of your performance as an undergraduate, you were able to. Um, And during that time, you had some contact with some very progressive thinkers, some people working on the cutting edge of the discipline, and also um, around a period termed the decade of the brain where new new science, specifically functional MRI technology, enabled us to learn more about how our brain works. Yeah, so where I studied my uh, master's, it was a five-star research institute. This is the elite level of of, of research programs judged by the government and we had a such a fantastic range of academics um carrying out cutting edge performance orientated research we had some very high profile um physiologists doing nasa research they were looking at muscle atrophy and the the impact astronauts going into space had on their muscles so that was fascinating and then we had 
a group of sports scientists that were trying to use the latest measurement tools to really understand physical and mental performance. So we had the physiologists working with Olympic world champion athletes, the biomechanic biomechanists doing the same, really digging deep in terms of what was going on inside the body physically. But we also had the psychology group, um, you know, working in cahoots with those guys, but the psychs were not only looking at the physical impact of um, performance pressure, all this stuff had on the body and the brain, but they were also starting to use those new sets of data that were emerging out of the decade of the brain where we were able for the first time to look inside the human brain in real time using technologies like functional, well, primarily functional MRI scanners. Um, yeah, and I remember at the time a lot a lot of the, for some reason, the, the French government had, had invested a lot into functional MRI scanners. So a lot of the papers we were reading were, thankfully they weren't written in French, but they were written by French academics because I can't read French, but... They're written by French academics. So we were we were sort of on the first wave of seeing this data and trying to make sense of it as to what did it mean for physical performance. You know, one of the seismic things that was coming out of that data, which might feel really obvious now, is the is the concept of neuroplasticity. That brains are changing all the time. We did not used to understand that. Um and it was, you know, back then it was almost like we think we our brains are like plasticine, but, you know, now we're very compelled by that. So, yeah, that was a fascinating time. And again, because I decided I wanted to do make a living out of this, I just kind of threw myself into it and think off the back of that work, that, that year, I had, I think I generated um, two or three peer-reviewed publications. Um so I was just keen to to really throw myself into it. And also because it was an elite sporting um, university and there was lots of opportunity to practice applied sports psychology skills, as we would call them there. So not only getting the research, but also able to apply that research. So, so and, and- to use it to help people do better, yeah. Yeah, thanks, John. The crux of it then really, I suppose, for people to to take away is that you as practitioners were able to see what you've said it in plain English, but you just I think it's worth re-emphasizing. You're able to see what is happening when people have a thought, when people try to carry out a physical action. You're able to see what's happening in the brain and and see patterns and, and establish the exact process when these things take place. If you want to fulfill your potential or help other people fulfill their potential so you can feel great and get the rewards and respect you deserve, then I want to give you a free physical copy of my new best-selling book because you deserve to know the truth. 
the most important things for fulfilling your potential are not tips, tricks, hacks, therapy, coaching, meditation, breathwork, goal setting, journaling or finding your why. I know it sounds irrational because we're so used to hearing about using these things to help us fulfill our potential. But these approaches are outdated and ineffective and they are based on a big lie. To find out more and get your free physical copy of Dr. John Finn's best-selling book, The Habit Mechanic, go to tougherminds.co.uk. Yes, and your brains are very, very complex organisms. Well, I mean, that's an understatement. We know the brain is the most complex organism in the non-universe. And we were certainly able to see those things far more um, precisely than anyone had been able to see them before. So we were trying to make sense of, of, of some of those things we were seeing when you got activity, you know, in the front part of the brain, what did that mean? What did it mean when it was in this, this lobe? What did it mean when it was in that lobe? So yeah, trying to get a, a just sense of a big, focus of my interest was in it was in imagery and what we would call functional equivalence uh, in in the book I talk about this in um chapter 24 forming under pressure where I talk about the um king George the the, the king's speech film it's the king's, king's speech, speech film isn't it people yeah, recognize that yeah I use that I use that example and I introduce something called the t-tap model which is a functional equivalent practice model. So the idea is that when you practice for a real performance, you've got to be activating as, as many neurons as possible that you're going to need to fire in that physical performance. Um, so yeah, we were using, yeah, we, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't see any of that stuff in my undergraduate. And my suspicion would be now, if I went back to do my undergraduate again, I'm not sure I would see, any of it or you know maybe much of it i think my understanding speaking to peers and colleagues is that they were not exposed to this stuff and many of them still are not so even though that's you know 20 years old now of these experiences that we're sharing they're still not widely accessed you think you think if someone's done a degree in psychology they must know everything about why people think and what they do and how to change their behavior well, that's a nonsense. Psychology is the most, it's so complex. You think if you're going to be a medical doctor, you um, you trained, I think, for seven years as a minimal, then you specialize in something. And, you know, medical doc, even your, your GP doesn't know everything about everything. They've got a general gist of things and you'll be sit, sitting in, in their office with them sometimes and they're going to have to go Google or look in their database to, to, to check something out. So, if you get a degree in psychology, you spend three years looking at something. Psychology has, I think it's got seven core disciplines. Um, you're going to maybe learn a little bit about one of those disciplines. Whereas what really started to resonate with me in this, when I started to get exposed to the brain in the master's program, was, wait a minute, the brain is at the middle of all this. The brain's at the heart of this stuff, and no one's ever mentioned it to me before. And when I'm reading all these other psychology textbooks, no one's talking about the brain yet. That's at the 
the heart of all of these processes and now we can look inside it. We don't have to rely on these black box, outdated thinking um, theories anymore. We can move beyond this. And that was the start of the journey. Not just for me, it was the first time we could actually see inside the brain. So, so yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, people might be worried that the podcast is turning into a university challenge or some sort of uh, academic forum. But I think it's so important just to flag that and, and emphasise that for people that this understanding now when you when you realize the understanding you had and the insights you gained you can see why it's the foundation as you say for the habit mechanic approach the book habit mechanic university app and and changing behavior and understanding how people think so i think it's really worthwhile just dwelling on that for a moment so back to you then john um after this period this successful period uh, of study um you started to then uh, move into the world of work where these these skills and insights are required the sports industry uh, and you worked in a sports analytics company and in those disciplines and that that brought you to a lower league football club where some of this stuff really happened for real and and you were able to observe and influence some some really fascinating moments tell us more about that please yeah so i got the first job after my masters with a company called prozone that doesn't exist anymore it's now called stats there were the one of the pioneering companies that were measuring in real time what professional athletes, in particular footballers, were doing on the field, how far they were running, how many tackles they were making, how many passes they were making, et cetera, et cetera. So they were, they were creating this, I suppose, statistical um, software package after every game, the coaching staff of the, of the teams that were our clients. And as part of my training, I got posted with a small team called Scunthorpe United, um, who were at that time in League One, which is the third tier of the English professional football leagues. And yeah, I worked with them for three. So I ended up going to work with them, um, being employed by them, not by. I, I moved away from Pros and I actually just went to work for Scunthorpe. So I was using my ability to use the software, but also my my psychology skills as well. So I was the, the psych the psych slash analyst. And in my second season, we we won the league against the odds. We were more favourites to be relegated than get promoted, and we ended up winning the league by by spending fifty percent less on player wages than our direct competitors, essentially the teams that came second and third in the league. They spent about 50% more than us on player wages, yet we accumulated more league points than they did. And at the time, it was a UK record in professional football for the least amount of money spent for the most league points gained. It was a seismic achievement. And part of how we were able to achieve that, there's a real Moneyball story, was that we were... Um, very good at recruiting young players from Premier League teams, um, from much bigger teams than us. That that were very good. The young players were very good, but they weren't better than David Beckham or Wayne Rooney or Steven Gerrard. So it was hard for them to get first-team football on a regular basis at the pinnacle of the English football pyramid. So we typically take these guys on loan 
the young guys. We'd see if we like them. If we like them, we typically pay in the region of about £100,000 for them. Yet, some of the players that we we pay £100,000 for a few years later, I think we saw one guy on for a 95% profit. And we the, the club that bought him was the, the same club we, we bought him from. So he was their product, essentially. But there were other young men I'd say not so much at our club, but um, that you know you would see that that I would know because that was sort of my I hung around with quite a lot of high performing athletes, um, so I, I knew from my own stories from the from the the things I was seeing in, in the league in the in professional football rugby cricket, also from the literature. That just because you were one of the best when you were eighteen, it was no guarantee that anyone would even be paying you a professional a full-time wage to play full-time football, for example, when you were 21, 22. So the, what you would call the academy to first team transition became really interesting for me. And then also when we got promoted to, we got promoted out of league one into the championship, which I'd argue is the most competitive league in the world, which is the second tier of um, English football. So everyone fighting to get into the Premier League, which is we know is the most lucrative soccer league in the world. I, I just saw a lot of really interesting transitions when I went into that league, what I'd call performance transitions, leadership transitions. So my interest in the junior to senior slash academy to first team transition and the, the leadership performance transitions I was seeing during that promotion period inspired me to do a PhD to learn more about the things that I was seeing. And at the heart of that PhD was emotional regulation, which I felt was the key to being healthy, happy, and at your best. And if you could learn how to get good at it and habitualize it, which I talk about, I think in chapter 14 of the book, implicit emotional regulation. If you can do that, then that is literally the, yeah, it's the key to being healthy, happy, and at your best. Yeah, so I think now people can see that when they're following your story, uh, there's this combination of real-world practical experience and, and seeing things happen for real and having access to these cutting-edge and uh, scientific insights about how the brain works and how habits run us. Um, it, it's clear to see that, that you are starting now to approach uh, where you are now today with a habit mechanic, although still, still some way to go, and another step on the journey um was was in another sporting discipline specifically professional golf he worked for the professional golfers association and, and supported them um in an area that i suppose anyone who plays golf will recognize performing under pressure yeah so without going into too much detail the professional golfers association which is the preeminent training organization for golf coaches in the world the uk version is the preeminent one they wanted to introduce sports science into their training program. And part of that was sports psychology, golf psychology. So they, they asked me, could I help to create that program? And, you know, people who've done sports psychology, read about sports psychology, will be familiar with ideas like imagery and self-talk and triggers, etc. But I thought that we that's going to be too intangible for the coaches to be able to really use when they're giving a golf lesson. 
So I thought, how can we make this even easier for them? So I created this thing called the pre-shot training program, which was essentially taking what I understood about how we learn from what I'd learned about how brains work, taking what I'd learned about how we can activate the same neurons in the brain during practice that are going to be activated under pressure. I created this physical toolkit that coaches could use and golfers could use to help them to prepare or to, to practice, to help them to practice thinking the same thoughts that they were going to be thinking when the pressure came on. So essentially, the pre-shot case, and I wrote a few books about this that you can get on, I think are available on Amazon. Um, you can you can put the, the, it's a pack with big squares that you map out on the floor and you plan out your thoughts. You plan out what you're going to be saying to yourself that we now call focus words and what you're going to be imagining that we now call focus pictures. So we created it, made it really easy for golfers, golf coaches to teach their golfers how to create really psychologically robust um, pre-shot routines, but also post-shot routines. And then actually we were able to use that same kit in different sports, in different contexts, because it made something that's very intangible thinking into something that was really tangible and something real, real making it really easy to actually plan and to practice. Yeah, and um a clue for people that 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 making the intangible tangible is something we'll come on to later in john's story and 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 as he and he says it it relates to how how we all think and and this is now really uh, i'm sure people will start to recognize that approach when they read the habit mechanic book use the habit mechanic university app or perhaps work with you on your certified habit mechanic coach program john and just one thing very briefly on the golf i remember once uh, working with you we were on a golf range with a golf journalist and um you took them through the pre-shot routine using the practical kit talking about uh, teaching them how to help think more helpfully when playing golf and and i think we saw a pretty miraculous almost instant improvement and it just struck me that of course in the certified habit mechanic coaching programs you, you you show people how they can improve happiness and, and performance by 25 percent over a 90-day period in other words a quick a quick effect a quick benefit and that happened in the in the realm of golf that is so you would you would emphasize this quick improvement can take place when you focus on the right thing yeah you can get really quick wins and then the beauty of our approach is we show you how to habitualize that as well so yeah you know many people you will this 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 podcast is obviously about the habit mechanic but we're, we're working through chapter, through chapter by chapter books that are in the market that also have the word habit in the title are often written by journalists and the backbone of my experience i'm explaining here i don't mean to sound boastful or anything but just that this is this is why this approach is different because I'm not a journalist. This is all I've done in my life since I've been, um, well, a teenager. I've been working on this, putting it together piece by piece, layer by layer, testing and trying as we go along. So I have a mechanic approach didn't just magically appear. 
it literally is you know, it's 20 plus years of work to get it to where it is now. And all these um, pieces of the puzzle that we're talking through in this episode have, have been absolutely key. And the pre-shot was a really, pre-shot kit was a really important um, foundational stone in this program. And it, and we got told multiple times, this is the best thing I've ever seen by world renowned coaches. You know, people who coached world champion athletes, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Um, and without pre-shot, we definitely wouldn't have the habit mechanic. And that leads on very nicely to to the next phase of this story that we're telling, uh, this this story about your development and the development of the habit mechanic approach. Um, from, from elite sport, you then moved into education, but that was because somebody recognised the benefits of, of these approaches that were being favoured in elite sport, um, specifically you worked for um, a private school, developing a very special, specific program. Yes, I worked for the Haberdashers livery company with their Monmouth schools. And, yeah, the the timing of my PhD finishing coincided with the build-up to the London 2012 Olympic Games. So there was, I suppose, a, a natural focus on sport and elite sport and the benefits that that brings. And there was a person called Sir Colin Moynihan, who was associated with the the Haberdashers and the former pupil of the of the Monmouth schools, also a former well Olympic, an Olympic medalist, former minister sports minister in the UK government. And at the time he was the chairman of the, or maybe there was the, he was one of the senior leaders of the Olympic, UK Olympic Association. So he was highly involved in the London Olympics. And it's my understanding that he said, in short, I've always benefited from insights from sports psychology across everything I've done in my life. So why wouldn't you teach these skills to young people? And the haberdashers, periodically put up money to bring in what they call teaching fellows, experts into their schools to, I suppose, bring a competitive advantage to the young people they were developing. And they really liked my PhD work, um, but also the fact that I had things like the pre-shot kit and I could make this stuff really practical. So they said, will you come and work in our schools for a few years? You've got a blank piece of paper. Can you help us to integrate performance psychology into the day-to-day lives of our young people? So that's how that started, and that was a really important chapter in the yeah in in my journey to to creating the habit mechanic approach as well. Yeah, and I suppose then that is a the first time some well young people, children, which I think is very significant. Were, were exposed to this approach and they weren't of course like professional athletes who for better or worse might have had a reason to be interested in improving their mental approach to what they did young children I'm, I'm sure um, just go with the flow to, to a certain extent in their education so you were able to influence them very positively um, and just digressing briefly it's worth pointing out I think that in education this approach 
really found its feet that the approach you now have and, and use in the habit mechanic book and you see academic benefits as well Ac- academic benefits were seen and, and continue to be seen by young people who, who apply these approaches yeah absolutely so we've got really um well refined and tried and tested well we have an entire curriculum um we call it the me power academy school success program and in fact yesterday i actually sent out um i made some of those resources from that curriculum freely available on our website because i know revisions a hot topic at the minute as exams are rapidly approaching probably the first set of real exams since um the lockdown you know where there's i suppose no no leeway being given to the young people taking them so the pressure's on so yeah, i made some of those resources available yesterday from our curriculum but yeah we see um we've seen time and time again and th- these are not just examination performance tools these, these are two this the curriculum is for developing you know it's like if you've read the habit mechanic it's the kids version of that um but the People always ask about impact and an obvious way to measure impact in education is exam performance. So we've seen time and time again that if you take, for example, GCSE students, just after their mock exams, mock GCSE exams, which kids typically do before or after Christmas, they give a, um, a baseline measurement for where everyone's at. And what we see then, if we can, if we take some young people after their after their mock exams, so you've got a baseline measurement. We give them, say, a 12-week training program. You know, we don't spend 12 full weeks with them, but we teach them how to use our planner, for example. We give them an hour a week just upskilling them on different things. We see that those children that we train to become habit mechanics, they get an extra half a grade improvement per subject compared to the pupils that don't do it. That's an average. Some pupils jump multiple grades. So everyone improves between their mock exams on average and their real GCSE results. Ah, The people that we work with improve by an extra half grade across every subject. We don't teach them anything about their subjects. We teach them how to focus and learn and build better revision and exam performance habits. And we teach them that stuff in a way that they can transfer those learnings out into every uh, domain of their life. So we hear the word transferable skills quite a lot. This is the, the, these are the real transferable skills, I would say. Learning how to analyze your habits, learning how to build better habits are the most important transferable skills that, anyone can teach us and that's what we teach young people yeah and it's hugely impactful yeah and uh it links us in very nicely to something else we're going to talk about in the final half of the podcast and uh, our discussion about the rapid development of artificial intelligence and the concerns and issues and debates around that stay stay with us for that it's going to be fascinating um so back to your story then john we can see now approaching full speed metaphorically then on your journey um and through this experience in elite sport, in education, developing your approach, 
with with the insights you had at your fingertips, you arrived at something which I don't think you coined it at the time, but later in the process of putting the Habit Mechanic book together, you called it the Habit Mechanic Manifesto. You you arrived at this 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 insight about the pivotal nature of our brains and the pivotal nature of habits. Yeah, so the the Habit Mechanic Manifesto, if you go into the app, which is free to download, um, free to use, this is labelled as our mission in there. So, yeah, pulling it all together, Habit Mechanic Manifesto, I am a habit mechanic. I don't use outdated self-help and coaching methods that are becoming less and less effective in the challenging modern world. I use proven insights from cutting-edge neuroscience, behavioural science and psychology to develop my own resilience and performance habits. And I use the same techniques to help those around me thrive and succeed. I change people's lives by empowering them to be their best. My fellow habit mechanics help me to be my best. I am only one habit away. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's what I think the habit mechanic approach is about. Um, it's a force for good. It's about helping people to actually do better and learn to do that in a way that they can also help others to do better um you can do that formally by learning to become a certified habit mechanic coach but equally um you know any tool that you're currently using from the book it, it's designed in a way that it's easy to show someone else how to get the benefits yeah and, and in the book um you set out that habit mechanic manifesto for people to see and as you say it's in the habit mechanic university app too um, you then go on to talk about uh, an important concept, I think. Um, you use the phrase only one habit away to, I think, uh, show people how they can begin a journey to feeling better and doing better, performing better. Um, you talk about the idea of super habits and destructive habits and identifying those and, and the importance of that. Um, please tell us more about that, because I think it's something that people really, uh, really does get their attention. Yeah, so in short, I've learned that some habits are more impactful than others, both positively and negatively. The ones that are more positively impactful, I call super habits. The ones that are more negatively impactful, I call destructive habits. A destructive habit is something that you do, one habit that has a negative knock-on effect and activates lots of, un lots of other unhelpful habits. So, for example, a destructive habit might be I finish work too late. So I'm really hungry. So I eat too much. And then I can't sleep very well. And then the next day, I don't feel very good. So I'm not very productive and not very focused. So I end up finishing work late again. Then I eat too much again. And then I start to gain weight. And it goes on like that. For B. I, f I finish work too late and I'm stressed, so I have a glass of wine. But then I have another glass and another glass. And although I might fall asleep quickly, the quality of my sleep is poor. But then the next day I'm not focused. Um, I'm not productive because my brain's not had the chance to clear out all the unhelpful things that have built up in it during the stress responses. And therefore, at the end of the day, I'm stressed again and I have another glass of wine. And it goes on like that. So... That's an example of a destructive or some destructive habits. Super habits are one thing, one habit you've got that activates lots of other 
helpful habit. So for example, on work days, the first thing I do is I go for a run. That's a super habit. Because by going for a run, it means that, well, I get my, cal- I, st- I, I start my calorie count for the day. I try to do about um, 10 miles on work days, walking and running. I um, get my brain working well, get the right neurotransmitters into my brain so I can get my sit at my desk and be focused, clever, productive, do the kind of work that makes me feel good about myself, do the kind of work that helps me to achieve my goals. I know that I'm going to eat more healthily if I've, if I've done that exercise. I'll be able to finish work on time and so on and so forth just by doing, excuse me, one of the one habit that going for the run. And I have a multi, I have lots of different, you know, creating a T-plan is another super habit that I've got. You see people doing that in the app every single day. So yeah, that so super habits and destructive habits. And essentially that's what the habit mechanic approach is all about. It's a program to help you to find your destructive habits and destroy them and also uncover your super habits, consolidate the ones that you've got and build more. And people might think, wow, the way you've explained it, I can see how habitual, innocuous behaviour that might not even be noticed can have such a profound negative or positive effect on our lives and our well-being. I think that's a sobering, sobering insight for people. But I also think it's worth stressing that in your approach, you're making it simple and practical for people to start the journey of identifying these things and changing them if they want to. Yeah, so it's no good just knowing about super habits and destructive habits. You need the tools to help you to uncover yours and then build new habits, and that's what the Habit Mechanic program, which is in the book, is all about. So we start with the habit metric tools to allow us to analyse our habits, and then we use the Habit Mechanic toolkit to allow us to build better habits always using a habit building plan to allow us to activate the nine action factors to give us the best chance of actually getting rid of the neurons that are not helping us to be at our best and replacing them with neurons that will help us to be at our best. Yeah. And normally on this podcast, John, we we save the questions to the end, but I think what we're talking about is is a great time to bring um, the the question um, we've had in. Um, And this question comes from David. Won't use your second name, David, but thanks. Thanks for your contribution. And just a reminder, please do keep your questions coming in. We'll endeavor to answer them on the podcast. Uh, Submit your questions via the website, tougherminds.co.uk or or on social media if you want. And and David asks, actually, he he has read the Habit Mechanic book. to some extent, or he's, he's, he's certainly come into contact with the ideas by the sound of it. Um, he, he asks, it's talking about super habits and destructive habits, will I, will I discover more super habits and destructive habits, David asks, as I continue using the habit mechanic approach and continue on my journey with tougher minds? Um, or, or will I just identify some and, and, and no more? Is it, is it a fixed process or might I uncover more of these super habits and destructive habits as I go on? Yeah, you will um, because your life is changing and the rules are changing all the time, you know? So the, 
injection of this human-like artificial intelligence will mean that some of the things that are currently helpful for us to do, we won't need to do those things anymore. We can use that time to do something else. But yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, you might create some good habits, but then you go on holiday, something happens in your life and those habits, they disappear. So then you need to reestablish them. Like one of the things, for example, I've, I've just been away for a week and I, I one, of, one of the things I reflected on was, so I, I'd built previously a really good habit of not checking the news in the week, which some people think is that's really extreme, but I've just found that that's not helpful for me to keep checking the news when often there's nothing that I'm missing out on. You know, if I just check the news at the weekend, it's actually quite rewarding to see all the interesting stories and how they've developed. Um, but also I'm not constantly interrupting my attention by looking and seeing what's on the news. And I noticed that that habit had really slipped um, during the last uh, period of time. So I want to reestablish that now. So I haven't actually checked the news um, yeah, this week so far. Uh, I've listened to there's certain podcasts I listen to, news podcasts and things that give me business news or whatever. But you know, I mean, I'm not going and actively looking at newspapers or or news websites. But you can feel I can feel it. It would be easier for me just to open up the BBC website. You know, you can feel your you can feel the the urge to do that. Um. So it's just an example of me. re-establishing or destroying a destructive habit that I've been on top of before, but it slips and now I need to work on it again. So our life is always dynamic. Things are changing, the rules are changing, and we're never just going to find a set list of super and destructive habits. There will be there's always going to be a backbone of my super habits. It's going to be pretty stable, but there's, there will always be new little things that I'll be adding into it, tweaking and refining. And the same for the destructive habits. Um, there's a good chance that a new destructive habit is going to creep into my life in the next, next six months. Um, it's going to be really unhelpful for me. But if I keep engaging in regular self-watching, daily, weekly, monthly, I'm going to be aware of that faster and therefore I'll be able to destroy it faster. So I hope that answers the question for David. Yeah, I think it does, John. And David, many thanks for for sending your question in. As I say, please do keep them coming in via the website, tougherminds.co.uk. Well, um, in the final bit of the podcast, John, um, you've touched on it already. We're going to talk about a new story uh, relating to artificial intelligence. So something you mentioned just in, in your answer then. And um, we're prompted to do this again by um, a, a podcast called The Real Story, which is available on BBC Sounds. Um, and it asks the question, can we control artificial intelligence? Because um, a number of Figures in the tech world have expressed major reservations about the rapid development of AI. Elon Musk is among them. I think uh, in the in the podcast he says it's, 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 he's reported as wanting to 
have a pause on the whole development of AI around the world. Apparently, the European Union is developing regulations, uh, a regulative framework to govern AI. China is trying to develop a, a law to regulate the development of AI. And hundreds of senior figures in the technology sector have signed a letter asking for this pause to happen. So real genuine concerns almost um, sounds like um, some sort of international diplomatic crisis, the way they're putting it. Uh, that's the background of people saying that AI can be terribly damaging in terms of things like human rights, disinformation, uh, fake news, etc. Um, but the podcast also interestingly asked for an expert panel to consider the risks and rewards of it more broadly. Um, and one of the questions that they raised was, uh, should we automate all jobs? Uh, and this feeds into the report by investment bank Goldman Sachs, which said AI, AI could replace 300 million full time jobs in due course, uh, which we've talked about on previous podcasts. And in then Europe. Most, in Europe only. Well, I miss that, John. I miss that fact. OK, so that gives you an even bigger sense of the scale. Um, and then um, the final element, which is just important, as we just set this context, uh, a professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley, um, Stuart Russell, and I'm paraphrasing him here, he says, in this new age of AI, um, people, people, an important distinction to draw, will be involved in interpersonal jobs, uh, uh, machines will do the routine tasks. Um, and, and he says, um, and I think this is so timely, given it comes a few months after the published publication of The Habit Mechanic, that, that the, the, the job of helping people to be healthier, happier and perform better, um, adding value to people's lives won't be regarded as, I think he uses an American word, woo-woo, i.e. slightly airy-fairy, as we might say in the UK. They will be regarded as essential to everyday life. And I know that's an approach, that's an analysis you have a, a lot of time for. Yeah, and I think that, so we, we're going to need more certified having mechanic coaches, absolutely. This is the thing. And the challenge that Stuart Russell, Stuart Russell did an entire lecture series for this on the BBC, I think Christmas of 2021, in the, is it the Wreath or the Wraith lecture series? Um, yeah, he points out that human, we're going to need humans to look after each other, essentially, because AI is a, is millions of miles away currently from being able to do that, um, being able to read humans' emotions, etc. But the challenge that we face is, and he points this out, the mainstream approaches to doing it are not very effective. And the woo-woo is, is an Ameri American term, you know, for what we call in the UK a little bit fluffy. It's not very robust. And the way I think about it, so if you've got, and, it, and it's interesting actually, we can contextualise this because there was some data that came out yesterday um, from the New York University's Brookings Institute, a very well-regarded research institute. And, and their data showed that 23% of the US adult population has mental health challenges. That's about 58 million adults in the US alone. And interestingly, what they find is, is that if you've got these mental health challenges when you're between 27 to 35 years of age, so if you're now, if you're now between the age of the 27 to 35, you've got mental health challenges, that by the time you get to 50, your earnings will be 24% lower than those peers 
that don't have mental health challenges right in, in the same age period. You know, so they're starting to tie us not our brains not working well or, or us not being able to get our brains working well, not being able to build and sustain helpful habits with things like loss of earnings, substantial loss of earnings. And I think that's really interesting. And when I look at what are the, what are the if, if I'm 27, if I'm 35, if, in fact, if I'm any age, what are the solutions available that can actually help me to do better? Well, one is we have medicine. And if we look at the nine action factors, which is in chapter 18 of the book, I'm not going to go into all of it now, but if we look at the nine action factors, medicine really deals with just one of those factors, which is brain optimization, which is great. It's a great starting point, but it doesn't deal with the other eight factors you need to activate to help you to build and sustain more helpful habits, which is what mental health management is about, which is what also what high performance is about. So that, that's one mainstream approach we use. The other mainstream approach we use is therapy or coaching, traditional coaching. And I'd say if you plug medicine and, and traditional coaching together, that probably represents 99.9.9.9% of the ways that people use to help them to do better. But therapy and traditional therapy and coaching also are not all that effective because they only activate, I think, three of the nine action factors. They'll help you to get your brain working better. They'll help with some processes of stress. They'll help with your mindset, which is another one of the nine action factors. And they'll also help with some more knowledge and some more skills, which is another one of the nine action factors. But it's, they still don't directly deal with the other six nine action factors. So we need to get better at helping, at learning how to help ourselves and others to do better in a sustainable way. One, because the AI ain't going to be able to do that anytime soon, so that's where our jobs are going to be. But two, because the current approaches are not very effective. They're a great starting point, but they're, done, they're not designed to actually help people to change and build new lasting helpful habits because they don't activate all of the nine action factors the only approach that i know that does that it is the habit mechanic approach and that's what people that are training to become certified habit mechanic coaches are learning how to do changing behavior is like a game because there are an established set of rules that we now understand that drive what we do so when you train to become a certified habit mechanic coach you learn how to play the game in your own life, but you also learn how to help others to play the game so they've got a better chance of winning uh, so that they're healthier, happier, and at their best more often. So, yeah, I think it's a fascinating area. And as you're saying, it just makes the habit mechanic approach more important because we can use ai to do lots of we're going to be able to use ai human like ai to do lots of things but it ain't going to help us to um do the very clever human what we might call co you know coaching processes um because you know the tech's just nowhere near being able to do those generalizable things yet yeah, and I think another another facet of this which feeds into the habit mechanic approach, John, um, obviously you've 
you've told us everything we need to know really then about that about that idea of of working towards getting people to help each other more in the way that they need to be helped in this in this new world a brave new world to quote uh, Aldous Huxley but also this is a massive period of change and flux in in business and industry and in society and the habit mechanic approach can can help us be resilient and and manage the change successfully yeah so the heart of change is habits ultimately your organization is built on habits you know just taking a, a step back from that as well you know if we just think about education we don't need teachers to dispense the knowledge anymore it's available on google it's available in you're going to be able to get a, a an artificial intelligent chatbot to teach you anything that you want to learn. We already see that in the language apps, you know, language learning apps much more effectively 24 seven than um, a human, a human being can by themselves. So we're going to need, what we're going to need from, from educators is that they are actually better at their job is to nurture and coach the young people. So you don't, for example, get the first learning of Shakespeare in the class you do that outside of the classroom. And then what you do in the class is, you know, it's more discursive. It's more about coaching and tweaking and refining. Yeah, so, so coaching is key. But yeah, the, the change management is harder than ever to do. I'm hearing, and it's more relevant than ever because it, when we've now got probably millions of people right now as we, as we speak looking into how do we embed this new human-like AI into our businesses? How do we use it to help our businesses be more competitive and beat our competitors. Um, but in order to do that, we're going to have to help people to develop new habits and not just habits to use a new tech, but actually habits so that they can do more focused, clever, high-impact work that the artificial intelligence can't do. And we talked about that, I think, in the, in the last episode of the podcast. So, yeah, Habits are more important than ever before because we have to get better at understanding the positives and negatives our own habits bring to our own lives, the positives and negatives our people's habits bring to the culture of our organisations. And then we have to help people to actually build new, sustainable, long-lasting habits. And again, the habit mechanic is the only approach I, I know that, that does that. Yeah, well, certainly, um, as you say, we've discussed it before and I'm sure we'll be discussing it again because uh, the, the development of artificial intelligence will no doubt be in the headlines and affecting our lives and our work, um, well, in, in many different ways for many, many years to come. Um, you, you talked about working with businesses there. Um, and as we come to the end of the podcast, John, I just wanted to um, um, ask you a little bit actually about the keynotes you've been doing. I know you've been out and about um, working with uh, a new agency um, uh, to, to, to promote your keynote services as well. We were talking in previous podcasts about some of the uh, others others you've been, you've been uh, reaching agreement with to, to work with and, and help people access your keynotes in the world of business and, and sport and education. Um, and, and great news, the VBQ agency, I think, is is the, the latest one. Um, 
your keynote obviously something that you've developed this year the habit mechanic keynote um again we've talked about a quick win and in that you're saying that that you can help people to develop their happiness and performance by at least 16 percent in in 90 minutes what what can people expect from a habit mechanic keynote if if they if they have the uh the, the fortune to experience one yeah well very quickly, you're going to be able to analyze your own how well, learn how your brain works, analyze your own habits there and then, and then be equipped with the tools that will allow you to build better habits in whichever whichever area you want. So, you know, many keynotes are just someone telling a story, something that's, that's interesting, that might hopefully be inspirational. This goes beyond that. You will be inspired, I think, by your own abilities that are locked away inside you and the fact that you can learn to unlock them, but actually will help you to analyze yourself and start to build, give you the toolkit to start building better habits. So we know people are time poor. Um, and that's why we designed very deliberately have a mechanic keynote to be so, to have such high impact in such a short space of time. Um, you can check out the details on our website. Um, and yeah, if people are interested in booking a keynote for their their team, for their organization, and just get in touch and we can have a conversation. Yeah, and I think um and something else just worth just worth mentioning, anyone who who does just speak to you about a keynote that they also can discuss the opportunity to get a signed copy of the habit mechanic book and free access to the habit mechanic university app too. So something to take away with you from from that experience. Yeah, so you get the toolkit. You don't just, you know, the main thing I hear about people's experiences of keynotes is, well, that was really interesting, but, you know, I put the notes in a drawer and I never use them again. We need to move beyond that now because people need help to do better. And what that means is they need help to build, to understand their own habits and build new habits. So we give you the tool, the toolkit to be able to do that, which when you plug the app and the book together, it's a very, very powerful uh, toolkit. Well, thanks for that, John. And yeah, you can find out more on the Tougher Minds website, tougherminds.co.uk, and you'll see Keynote in the top menu there. Well, John, thanks so much for your time again. Um, absolutely fascinating to hear your story of of how you started and, and how you arrived at where we are today with a habit mechanic book an Amazon bestseller and the habit mechanic university app and your certification programs. So people can become habit mechanic coaches and, and your keynotes and services and, and also what's offered to education as well. So um, it's been, it's been fascinating to talk and dive deep into chapter eight of the book. Uh, thanks for your time. Um, we'll be back with another podcast soon. So please do like, like us on the platform you get your podcast from leave a review if you can five star one would be great and subscribe as well so you don't miss out when we release a new episode of this habit mechanic podcast um yeah thanks again john um anything you'd like to say in closing just thank you to you andrew thank you to everyone for listening and remember you're only ever one habit away <laughs>